Well, good morning again. My name is Amy, and I'm one of the pastors here. And last month, my husband Trent and I celebrated our 21st wedding anniversary. Thank you. Uh, we got married back, you know, before Pinterest, before weddings had themes, before there was really anything big or fancy happening. We just had this super simple church wedding. We had punch in the fellowship hall afterwards. The whole thing was wrapped up by about 2 p.m. But there was this one aspect of our wedding that, in hindsight, turned out to be kind of extravagant. Because a friend of ours who had recently moved to Nashville flew back in, and he played the music for our wedding for us for free. But instead of playing the hymn that we had asked him to play, he decided to write us an original song. And it was really beautiful. And the reason this seems extravagant now, in hindsight, is that he ended up being like kind of a big deal songwriter, producer in Nashville. And so we have this treasure on our wedding VHS of an early original song performed only once by him. And I'm telling that story this morning because actually I want to share a line from that song that I love. And the line is this. The water is wide and we're getting in. Love will take us places we have never been, and I'll go there with you. And this morning we're going to look at stories from Scripture about the flood, about Jesus' baptism, about his temptation in the wilderness, about our own baptism. And as we do, I want to keep coming back to that lyric almost as a refrain. So we'll see in these stories that the water of God's judgment in the flood and the water of God's mercy in our baptism is so wide. There's this almost frightening vastness and wildness to the God that we see in these scriptures. In a final song that we'll sing today, we're going to sing that God's love is rolling as a mighty ocean and is an ocean vast of blessing, is a current that wants to carry us deeper into his love. The water is wide. And we are getting in through the ark, through our baptism. We are plunged into the wide waters of God. But because Jesus has plunged in first, the waters will not pull us under. The God who is love is taking us places we have never been. And he goes there with us. And Lent is all about getting into the water with God. Traditionally, Lent was this 40-day season to prepare new converts for baptism, to literally dip into the waters at Easter. But for those who are already baptized, Lent is an opportunity to remember our baptism, to clear away the noise and the clutter, and to remember that we follow Jesus all the way to the cross where we were crucified with him at our baptism. And so throughout Lent, our Sunday readings give us these really thick passages about God's holiness, his judgments, his covenants, his work of reuniting us to himself, what we call atonement. And all of these passages are set in wilderness places, in deserts, in exile, on lonely mountaintops, and this week in this empty, flood-destroyed world. And that is often where God does his work in us. When we are stripped of our creature comforts, when we are vulnerable, when we are lonely and exposed. And so we're preaching a series this Lent called Encounters in the Wilderness. 
where we're looking at the passages through this lens, asking what happens when people encounter a holy God in the wilderness, and asking what will happen in us, in each of us, in our community, as we encounter the holy God in this wilderness season of Lent. And these 40 days of Lent, they echo a number of other famous 40 periods in Scripture, two of which are in today's passages, the 40 days of rain that caused the great flood and the 40 days of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And we're going to look at both of those today, but we're going to start with Genesis 9, which told the story of the aftermath of the great flood of Noah and the ark. But if we go back a few chapters just to set the scene, God looked out at humanity And it says in Genesis 6 that he saw that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time, and that the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. These are really strong descriptions. The sin on the earth that God sees is total. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The whole earth is corrupt and full of violence. This is something more than some people doing some bad things some of the time. Even though that tends to be the way we think about sin, especially as American Christians, because we live in this individualist society and we're just culturally conditioned to think about things through an individual lens. We think about sin as things that I or you do wrong, individual transgressions. Sin is a verb. It's a thing we do. And this is true. That is what sin is. But often in Scripture, sin is about a lot more than individual wrongdoing. It's more like what God describes in Genesis 6. Sin is this atmosphere. It is a state of being. It's a far country in which we are lost and wandering. And sin is an enemy power that's holding all creation in bondage. Sin is systemic, a reality that Black History Month makes painfully clear to us as we reckon with our national sins. And the theologian Fleming Rutledge puts it this way. She says, to be in sin, biblically speaking, means something very much more consequential than wrongdoing. It means to be helplessly trapped inside one's own worst self, miserably aware of the chasm between the way we are and the way God intends us to be. It means the continuation of the ring of greed, cruelty, rapacity, and violence throughout the whole world. And in view of God's nature, it is impossible that this state of affairs would be allowed to continue forever. She goes on to say, sin is not so much a collection of individual misdeeds as an active, malevolent agency bent upon our despoilment, imprisonment, and death, the utter undoing of God's purposes. Our misdeeds are the signs of that agency at work. They are not the thing itself. It is the thing itself that is our cosmic enemy. And God sees the thing itself in Genesis 6, a world held captive by that cosmic enemy. And his response to this, Genesis 6 tells us, is that God grieves. God is deeply anguished. God regrets 
that he ever unleashed any of this, that he made it at all. Now, just to note, this way of describing God ascribes human emotions to the God who is not human, who is God, who is wholly other from us. And God is unchanging, so he can't truly regret or grieve or make an oopsie or wish that he could do a do-over for everything. Not in the ways we understand those terms. The God that we see in these early chapters of Genesis is this primordial, ancient, wildly other God who comes to us through thousands of years of language and culture and history. And the writer of Genesis is using limited human language to describe what is beyond language, the heart of God, the nature of God. We can't fully grasp the mystery of a God who regrets and grieves his creation and who is still God. But we can grasp what this is trying to tell us about what God is like, that God is holy, and that God's desire for the world he made is goodness and flourishing and not evil run rampant. And that God is intensely committed to this good purpose with this divine God intensity that we can only barely begin to understand through the words of human emotion, words like grief, heartbreak, betrayal, remorse, regret. All of those are captured in the Hebrew here. God's commitment to his sinful creation is painful in the heart of God. And as Rutledge said in the quote I just read, in view of God's nature, it is impossible that this state of affairs would be allowed to continue forever. And so God does something even more mysterious, even more other. He sends a flood to destroy the earth and begin again. It's this terrifying display of his holiness and his power and his authority. And to be honest, it makes me really uncomfortable. I don't want to imagine a God who will flood the earth to deal with human sin. This God doesn't believe the way, or doesn't behave the way I wish that he would. And I wish I could explain this story away right now with some like magic theological trickery or some newly found translation of the Hebrew that suddenly makes it all make sense, but I can't. This is the God who is revealed to us in the wilderness of human sin and in the wildness of the flood. As Katie said in her Ash Wednesday homily, God is not a tame beast. He's beyond our control, he's beyond our comprehension, beyond our language, and beyond our taming. His waters are wide, vast and deep and rolling. But God does preserve a handful of people and animals on the ark. He keeps them safe through the rising waters of his judgment. And then he lets them know when it's safe to come out and the earth is dry. In chapter 8, they come back out of the boat and begin to repopulate the earth. And Noah builds an altar to thank God for keeping them safe. And God makes a promise. He says, even though every inclination of the human heart is still evil, Never again will I destroy all creatures as I have done. And then that promise continues in chapter 9, which is today's reading. And he makes this covenant, not just with Noah, but with every human who will come after him, with every creature of the earth and all of their descendants, 
For as long as there is time, God says, I will never do that again. And then as a sign to remember this covenant, God hangs up his bow in the sky like a warrior setting his weapon down forever. Now, a covenant, the way it's described here, is like a treaty or a pact or a pledge. And often in a covenant, both parties will agree to something, but not here. This is entirely one directional. Noah has done nothing. Humanity has not changed. God's intense commitment to his creation's goodness has not changed. But God here is setting new terms of engagement. The Old Testament scholar John Golding Jay writes, God is firmly and inescapably tying his hands. The untamable God is taming himself. He is pledging to his wayward creation unlimited patience. And if we fast forward thousands and thousands and thousands of years later to the time of Jesus, God is still patient. He has not flooded his creation. Instead, he has stepped into his creation in the person of Jesus. Mark tells us that Jesus dips into the waters of the Jordan to be baptized. The one who has no sin willingly goes down into the water to be washed clean, to be flooded. And then the heavens are torn open and the Spirit of God descends and the voice of God declares his love for Jesus, his pleasure in him. And one of my commentaries this week said that when the Spirit of God breaks into creation, you can expect conflict because God is still intensely committed to freeing his creation from the power of sin. And we see this in Mark's gospel. We see it when the Spirit immediately leads Jesus into the wilderness, where he is buffeted by waves of temptation, where he goes to battle with this enemy power. And that battle continues, and it eventually takes him all the way to the cross, and even beyond the cross, to death itself, the last enemy. And this is where our reading from 1 Peter tells us something remarkable. He tells us that in our baptism, we defeat these enemy powers right alongside Jesus. He tells us that the ark was a prefigurement, a picture of this. In the ark, God sealed Noah's family in the boat and brought them safely through the floods of judgment. But now Jesus is our ark. Now the wooden boat has become the wooden cross that binds us to Jesus and brings us safely through. We can endure the waters of God's holiness, the waters of his cleansing, the waters of his judgment, because Jesus has already gone there and is sealing us in with him. And in our baptism, we plunge with him into his death and we emerge with him into resurrected life. Or as 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God, Jesus is bringing us through the waters safely to God. And then Peter says something else remarkable. In verses 19 and 20, he tells us that when Jesus died, he went and preached to the imprisoned spirits of the people who were disobedient in the days of Noah. All those people who were held captive to the power of sin, who had unleashed so much violence on the earth, 
who wouldn't listen and wouldn't believe and wouldn't get on the ark and were swept away in the flood, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, descends to the realm of the dead and preaches the gospel to them. And however uncomfortable the flood might make me, there is this merciful footnote that even those souls lost in the flood hear the liberating word of Jesus, calling them to life, calling them to freedom from sin's power, inviting them into the new creation. The waters of God's judgment are wide, but the waters of his mercy are so much wider. And we all live in the wilderness because sin, that great enemy power, still holds the world in its grip. But God is resolved not to wipe us out, but to come to us, to become like us so that he can carry us through. In Jesus, it is as if God, this holy, wild, flooding God, is saying to us, the water is wide, and we're getting in. My love will take us places we have never been, and I'll go there with you. It's our practice in Lent to observe silence after the sermon, and so in just a minute, we'll take one minute of silence, and then we'll grow our silence by a minute every week. And especially as we get started, silence can feel kind of weird and awkward. It's not truly silent because there's always noise. And that's all totally normal. Over time, it will still do its work in us, create a little wilderness in us where we hope to hear God speak. So let me pray. Thank you that you are a God who meets us in the wilderness, who meets us in the flood and carries us through. Lord, as we go into silence, would you meet us there? In the name of Jesus, amen.